0: and load. This is Steve Dace. The
1: Steve Dace Show. And greetings. Welcome to Blaze Live and On Demand. I am Steve Dace. Todd and Aaron are here with me as well. It is a Theology Thursday. We'll be talking some theology coming up uh, both in this and next hour uh, as well. 888-900-3393 is the number. 888 900 93. And we love to know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is how you can email the program. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. And for those of you, that are listening on demand on the podcast. The last name is spelled D-E-A-C-E. And if you are listening to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, if you have time today and you haven't done so already, leave us one of those five-star reviews. They definitely help us. The more of those that grow, the more that gives the show an opportunity to grow as well. Well, let's get to it. A lot's gone on the last 24 hours. Here's what happened while we were away.
2: What happened while we were away brought to you by the fallout. Mitt Romney's op-ed criticizing Donald Trump was the talk of the news cycle yesterday, as well as his first appearance as an incoming senator on CNN. Um, Do you think the shutdown is worth it for the president's border wall? Well, he's going
3: to have to make that on assessment
2: himself. But Uh, what do you think? You now represent people who are not getting paychecks. uh,
3: Let me tell you, I would would, uh, vote for the, the border wall. I've made that... Uh, part of my platform for many many years president
2: trump kind of took the high ground about as well as he can saying here we go with mitt romney but so fast question will be is he a flake i hope not would much prefer that mitt focus on border security and so many other things where he can be helpful rona mcdaniel blasted her uncle on twitter Modis is attacked and obstructed by the mainstream media and Democrats 24-7 for an incoming Republican freshman senator to attack real Donald Trump as their first act feeds into what the Democrats and media want and is disappointing. ...and unproductive. Of course, the cult of Romney defended him, namely David French. How dare Mitt Romney criticize a president of low, low character? How dare he say things that are true and stake out a future for conservatism... ...and the GOP that does not depend upon that man of low, low character? On another note, how dare Mitt Romney accept the endorsement of a president of low, low character? Of course, for the left, or on the left, Romney has some newfound respect... Emphasis on newfound.
1: Romney wants to let the, he said in the first hundred days, he's going to let the big banks once again write their own rules. Unchain
3: Wall Street. They're going to put you all back in chains.
2: All right, enough talk about Mitt Romney, even though, you know, I'm sure everybody wants to talk about that for the rest of the day. 2019 is off to a great start. On the topic of things we need to get caught up on, Elizabeth Warren all but announced she's running for president earlier this week and she took the time to let us know that she is a completely normal human person and gosh darn it she just wants to have a beer
0: hold on a sec i'm gonna get me um a beer hey Robert, my husband bruce hey. is now in here um you want a beer no i'll pass on the beer for now you, you sure Okay, yes So this is my sweetie. Hello. And I'm crazy.
2: I love you. I love you, too. Bernie Sanders is facing allegations his 2016 campaign for president was a hotbed of sexual harassment and misogyny. Here's what he told CNN when asked about it.
3: And and just to be clear, uh, you seem to indicate that you did not know at the time about the allegations. Is that correct? Yes, I
1: was a little bit busy running around uh, the country trying to make the case.
2: Oh, I see nothing.
3: nothing. I was not here. I did not even get up
2: this morning. Speaking of Bernie, we must look at climate change as if it were a devastating military attack against the United States and the entire planet. And we must respond accordingly. CNN ran a segment wherein they interviewed real-life witches, real-life witches, about Trump's use of the term witch hunt.
0: Witches tend to side with liberals, and you know what they wish President Trump would stop saying about the Mueller investigation?
2: It's a witch hunt. Really disgraceful. I mean, thousands of people were executed in Europe
3: on suspicion of witchcraft.
2: There's a lot to be offended by by Donald Trump, and I think his use of the term witch hunt is, is very low on that list of priorities for most witches, but nevertheless it does demonstrate his ignorance as usual and finally throw another shrimp on the barbie of the looming demographic winter coming for japan for those of you just listening this is a video of a 35 year old in japan who has married a hologram and for those of you listening i think you're probably pretty thankful you're listening right now because what we're seeing is horrifying
1: Up. Everybody ah, here seems to be ah, having a great time. He's ah, not a good drinker. Ah.
2: And that's what happened while we were away in two minutes or less.
0: <laughs> I'm so into 2019.
2: <laughs> I'm, uh... You want a beer?
0: Native American is why I trust that way more. That was way more realistic than what she just tried to pull off right there. Yeah. Oh, that was so great. I I, I I think I will go have a beer. <laughs> 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 <clears throat> oh, thank you for this job. Oh, it's so good.
1: Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, <clears throat> that's one of the most uncomfortable three minutes I have experienced in my 45 and a half years on this earth I, I, I don't even know I, I don't can I start to help you yeah, yeah, yes
0: yeah let's just go back to the top the the David French thing with charting a course for conservatives uh. um, <laughs> listen we do pop culture a lot to help people it rem- I happened to see it again over the course of, uh, because it's on uh, Netflix now, uh, uh, Avengers Infinity War. Mm-hmm. And it reminds me of that scene, it's just so well played, where uh, the heroes are on Titan uh, and uh, Chris Pratt's character, Star-Lord, who's just kind of flighty, and he's talking uh, to Iron Man. And he's saying, well, how about we try my plan because your plan kind of sucks and my plan is really awesome. And the man who has never at a loss for words, they just pan to Robert Downey Jr. And he, he has this look on his face like he doesn't say anything because finally Tony Stark has been broken. David French, you're too smart. Whatever. This is the guy. We have a longer than 10 year track record of what he is capable of. He is going to chart a course for a conservative. You can't possibly believe that. How did you say that
2: out well, loud? He brought well, y- he brought yeah, gay
1: marriage to America it, just, and created Barack Obama's he, worst idea before I, he I, had. exactly I,
2: he, he did. He, in fairness to David French, uh, Mitt Romney does have a ten year history of uh, charting a course for conservatism. It's called Donald Trump. Yeah,
1: I I, I mean the, the stuff that you know we're concerned about now with Catholic charities being told they have to do gay adoptions or shut down. Yep. he did that when he was governor his, of his Massachusetts. Backyard. Yes. This, the, the, all the religious liberty fights we're having right now we had them all when he was governor of massachusetts when he decided to up to enforce the Goodridge decision whether than rather than his own state law on the definition of marriage and then when the state of arizona uh five years ago wanted to get ahead of this battle and 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 provide protections for for businesses for conscience reasons he lobbied uh, was it uh, who jan what was her name uh the, the, the female governor of Arizona, the one that met uh, oh, right. Barack Obama out on the tarmac, you know what I'm talking about? Is it Jan Brewer? Is it Jan Brewer? He lobbied her to veto the legislation that would have protected First Amendment <laughs> freedoms. Now, I will say, if you want to go after Trump, the way that he did it in that tapper clip is much smarter than his op-ed. Asserting his, uh, his, his uh, affirmation for border security and for the wall. See, the mistake a lot of these guys flake and, you know, uh, these want to be Romneys. They, they, they're not as rich as Romney. They're not as smooth as Romney. They're not as smart as Romney. Uh, and so they're trying to play his game. Uh, the, the problem is the Romney or the, the flakes and Kasich's uh, Max Boots uh, weekly standards of the world abandon pretty much all of the conservative base positions in the process of going after Trump. Which left them in a no man's land without any base other than Democrats. Right. And this
0: is what you mean by never Trumpism corrupts. just yes, as absolutely. Ab- yes,
1: that's Molly Hemingway at the Federalist. Let's give her credit for yeah, that. Yeah, of she, course, she first made the, uh, the, the 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 observation that absolute Trump never absolute never Trumpism corrupts every bit as much as absolute Trumpism does. And so, for Romney to stay on message there about the wall and border security, uh, and not to abandon his base's position on that, if he maintains that. It'll be fascinating to see how the media, if they continue to glom onto him. See, the reason they love Flake and Kasich is while criticizing Trump, they abandon us. Yep. If Romney stays with even a conservative message, he probably doesn't even believe. But who knows how much Trump believes what he says either, right? You know. So we've kind of given up. Do they actually believe? <laughs> we don't know. But if he were to stay, if he were to use these uh, press avails he's getting for being critical of Trump's character... You know, you got John Kasich warming up in the bully to jump immediately and call us a bunch of a xenophobes and and vetoing pro life legislation, right? So this is this was if Romney should have started with this, in my view, he should have started with this interview, and then gone to the op ed rather than going right to the op ed. He should have he should have asserted, gone on the record with some form of policy, uh, uh, you know, uh, credibility before going right after Donald Trump. And the fact that he didn't is what exposed him. The real that's a harsh slap down having your own is that that's his niece, right? Yeah. Uh, having his niece who's the head of the RNC, uh having her come and uh and, and and pimp slap you like that on Twitter, that's that's cold-blooded, man. So that that's a that's a quality play by team Trump right there. Much smarter having her do it than having Trump yes. go over the top with with so it was much much there's a you know what? I'm not saying th- there is no such thing as 4D chess, it doesn't exist, okay? But that was actual chess. Like I do think actual chess exists, okay? We just don't see it played very often at least by guys with the and gals okay. with the R after their name. At least checkers. That yes. that was actual chess now, all right? Having the, Romney's niece pimp slap him like that on Twitter was a was a solid political play. By Team Trump and one that Romney exposed himself to by leading with the the flake approach rather than leading with, hey, let me take a conservative position on policy or to establish that ground and then go after the president's character. He he opened himself up to that. And that was a very effective, uh, uh, you know, uh, that was a very effective return of serve there, I thought, by oh. Team Trump. I
0: agree, but what does it say to you when the the so-called the first classroom of Twitter uh, where they get uh, the better pretzels and the cool drinks, you know, it would be one thing to say we have few <laughs> options. Uh, Romney's our best pragmatic option. Something are uh, but you use the term yeah, "no one believes." towards conservatism. They, he they, isn't that they, guy.
2: They need him to be his hero. Their hero, just like people Why? who are not rhinos need their, need their politicians to be heroes. Because he's not a guest anymore. We know who he is. Because and, we're all idolaters. The,
1: the, the problem that that David has, and I don't think David is Bill Kristol, who was probably never a conservative, just, just didn't believe in the progressive foreign policy view. Uh, uh, and, uh, and that's kind of the, the, you know, and kind of glommed on to the Bush administration in a post 9-11 world. Um, the, David is a conservative. But but the problem is he he, he is in many respects exactly what he condemns. He is far more interested in the packaging. Okay, like what he says about Trump's character is all true. How many times has Mitt Romney been caught on tape lying, flip-flopping, Legion. making up positions? You were so guys, certain about that that you said listen, on your radio show you would
0: be you would quit yeah. your job if you if they could catch uh,
1: you. Lying about Mitt Romney because you were so certain of what you just said. I know a thing or two about this because my career was made exposing all those lies. And if I had been wrong in exposing them, my rear end would have been fired immediately. We wouldn't be sitting here today. we wouldn't be sitting here today. Okay? I'm not the reason Mike Huckabee, all the media that has said that for years. I am not why Mike Huckabee won the 2008 Iowa caucuses. I am the reason Mitt Romney lost. I did the opposition research that Huckabee didn't even have the stones or the money to do. I did it every day for three, three hours on WHO radio in Des Moines statewide. And I didn't do it with, I, I didn't read blogs or, or, or do it with monologues. What did I do? I played his actual clips. I played clips of him attacking Reagan Bush in the 1994 Senate debate with Ted Kennedy, trying to get to the left of Ted Kennedy and join Ted Kennedy in attacking Ronald Reagan. I I I pointed out what, what Romney did on the marriage issue in the Goodrich decision in Massachusetts. I pointed out what his record was on funding abortions through through Romney Care, and then when his people said that that's not true, I went to the website for Romney Care and just cop cut and pasted right. the link that showed covered ser, covered services abortions. So not even a deep dive. This is just y- a shallow I, no. pool. You
0: dipped your toe I in. I did a
1: Google. I went to the Boston Globe, uh, uh, the Boston Globe archive, and found Romney Romney's. You're facing a, a, you know, he was what to do with Catholic charities and they're being sued and whether to force them to do gay adoptions or not. And instead of giving an an exemption, he told the Catholic Church in Massachusetts, you've got to do adoptions to homosexuals and they shut their charity down. The same debate we just had with the nuns and and Obama. We had all these debates with Romney and Catholics in Massachusetts. I didn't I didn't do anything. I just played his clips. There were, he gave three different positions on abortion as a Republican primary presidential candidate. I'll never. You want to know when John McCain won the 2008 Republican nomination? There was a debate leading up to uh, Charlie Gibson was the host, and it was the debate on ABC Saturday night before the New Hampshire primary. And McCain is just destroying Romney on all his flip flops. And the one thing, and, Rom, and Romney's trying to make it look like he's the candidate of change. And McCain turns to him and says, well, one thing I think we all agree on here, Miss, yes. is you are the candidate of change. And the camera zooms in on Romney and the blood drains from his face in real time. And he was over right there. So what does
0: it say about our conservative first class, I ask again, that they are seduced by this packaging? What is
1: this? Because what this is really about is, I don't like Trump's base, and I don't want them in control. The the Republican Party. But this gave us The Republican Party's battle. Yes. Yes. But they can't admit this. They're like the media. The David French crowd, if they admit this— they are admitting to guilt in open court. It's the same thing with the media. The media cannot admit that they gave Trump 60 times more coverage than any of the other 16 candidates. You know, I know a lot about the Romney-Trump dalliance in 2012 because I was on the Newt Gingrich campaign in that cycle, and we coveted Donald Trump's endorsement and heavily competed for that endorsement and thought we were going to get it. And then at the last minute, he didn't think Newt could win, and he gave it to Romney instead because he thought Romney could win. And man, us and the Romney people, we fought for that endorsement. I I can tell you firsthand, for a fact, I was on that campaign. The Romney people absolutely wanted that Trump endorsement in 2012 because they fought us for it. We thought it was going to be influential. And so you want this endorsement. You accept this endorsement. So you are admitting then, by your own admittance, you sought out the endorsement of someone of, quote, low, low character. What does that say about you? The problem that the David French crowd in in our movement has is the same problem the mainstream media has. They cannot admit their culpability in creating this monster because to do so is to admit guilt in open court. And so the press cannot admit Donald Trump won the Republican. Fox News did not give Donald Trump the nomination, guys. I remember writing a column for USA Today to the first GOP debate hosted by Fox when Chris Wallace and Megyn Kelly tried to kill him. Do you guys remember this? Mm -hmm. They tried to kill him on the stage, and Trump was so mad, he started talking about Megyn Kelly bleeding from her, whatever. Do you guys remember this? Very well. Fox was totally in the camp of Scott Walker, Jeb Bush, and Marco Rubio. Remember after we won the Iowa caucuses on the Cruz campaign, and for the next three days, Fox celebrated Marco Rubio's greatest third-place finish in the history of all class and planets. That was fun. They did not give Trump the nomination. The mainstream media did. And they gave him all. I'll never forget being, coming back from NRB, National Religious Broadcasters, when we launched Nefarious Plot. Coming back from, uh, that, from that book event at, at, in Nashville. And Amy and I's flight, my wife and I's flight, gets delayed back to Des Moines for two hours. And, the, and so CNN's always on in the airports, right? CNN ran the, that was the day Chris Christie endorsed Trump. And, and, and CNN ran the entire Trump-Christie endorsement rally in its entirety. Then they ran a roundtable with Scotty Hughes and that harem-scarum of, you know, Trump rejects, uh, you know, shilling for him. And then they, like, mentioned Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz for like 30 seconds. And then they re-racked the Trump-Christie rally and played it again in its entirety. And I saw it all sitting in the Nashville airport on every screen. They're why Trump won the nomination, because they thought he was a joke. They thought he was a scam and that he, he, was the, he was the easiest candidate for Hillary to beat. And so they set him up for him to win, thinking, we'll set him up in the, in the primary, tear him down in the general. And now they're just pissed off because their joke came back to bite him in the rear end. Because Dr. Frankenstein always hates the monster he created. David French in that crowd is, is the same malady. They cannot admit the role they played. Trump, this, is, this is one of the chapters in my forthcoming book, Truth Bombs. Trump is neither the problem nor the solution for the conservative movement. He is the symptom of what has become of it. Mitt Romney may or may not have been a better president than Barack Obama, may or may not have been a better president than, than Donald Trump. We don't know the answer to that. What we do know is he has no he has no interest in charting a future course for conservatism and he hasn't his entire elected career he never has never has he's made that point clear over and over again guys he wouldn't eat a chicken sandwich Mike Huckabee stands up for Chick Fil A. This becomes a nationwide thing. It goes in the Guinness Book of World Records as the greatest one day in the history of restaurant restaurant business in world history. If Chick Fil A Day had happened when Trump was running, Trump would have bought Chick Fil A. I don't mean the a sandwich. I mean the company. And said, "Hell yeah." I'm going to crap Chick-fil-A's at the first presidential debate. I'll be eating them. I'll eat them on the lectern if that's what it'll take to win. That's why Trump has a base and Mitt Romney doesn't, except for people like David French. It's because when Romney was handed a chicken sandwich, he said to the people at Politico, that's not a part of my campaign. Meaning, that's 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 not my, that's the quote. Yes. That's not my, I don't want that base. I want them to vote for me on my terms.
0: Well, that's what you've said about his whole campaign. They thought the the when you look at his
1: campaign strategy, you can only come to one conclusion: Occam's Razor, and it's the year of no BS. When you go back and look at Romney's 2012 campaign strategy, the only conclusion you can come to is they they had they had simultaneous goals to defeat Barack Obama, but to do it with the least amount of base. Favor curring as they possibly could to basically win without the conservative base, without catering to them, so that once they were in office, they could banish us to the kitty table. Because every opportunity that entire campaign he had to make any Romney lost in twenty twelve. He he knew he was going to run or twenty two thousand eight. He knew he was going to run again in two thousand and twelve. For the next three years, we had the Tea Party uprisings and and the conservative base rose up. He could have made numerous overtures. To say, hey, I'm with you guys. He never did the entire time. He went out of his way that entire cycle to try and win this thing without his base. So that's why he doesn't have a base. And, he, and people like Romney lost it to people like Donald Trump. And, and if you think Trump is bad, it will get worse until if you, if folks like French refuse to learn this lesson, Aaron, you wanted to chime in?
2: Yeah, I, I think the real reason, or just maybe to put it another way, that uh, people like French voted or uh, love or defend or protect people like Romney and people like fill in the blank Trump supporter gravitate to people like Trump. It's the same reason that you wrote about about a month and a half ago, where in that column, I know who can, you know, you predicted what will happen in in 2020. If the Democrats vote for somebody or elect or nominate somebody who is likable, uh, they're going to win. What do people like the most? People like them some me the most. And that's why I think they project whatever they want upon their candidates that they like because um, the candidate makes it possible to do that. The same thing is true of the weekly standard crowd. They project, they see themselves or at least project themselves in people like Mitt Romney, or at least Mitt Romney yeah. is a lot like them, yep. and they like them some meat That's exactly right. That's why they vote for him. That's exactly same, right. The same thing is true of of a lot of Trump supporters as well. I, not all of them, but a lot of Trump supporters as well and early adopters, is they were able to project themselves on the Trump, and they liked themselves. So yep. that's why they voted for him. It's a whitewashed tomb versus another whitewashed tomb, because guess what? We're all a lot to some a degree uh in the political realm we're all whitewashed too. So nobody has a high ground to stand on. But at the same time it does ring true. They like Mitt Romney. They will defend him to the death because they see themselves in Mitt Romney.
1: That's exactly right. Uh, that that's that is exactly right. We'll talk more about this on the Blaze Roundtable later today. John Miller, our White House correspondent, will be joining us. I've got to get to the Elizabeth Warren thing since you brought up what I wrote a couple of months ago. How we already know what's going to happen in twenty twenty. The 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 actions she's taking prove that I am right. That that's that 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 is the most awkward uh, beer grab in all of human. History. Yes, stewardess. I speak jive. Yes. (laughs) Gosh, that's. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know who it was. If I if I could remember your name, I'm sorry I want to give you credit. I think I've proven on this show. I am happy to make to, to cite when people say something that we use on our program. It's a f- it's a female conservative writer. I can't remember if she's for the Federalist or the Daily Wire. I can't remember her name. But she said Elizabeth Warren is that suburban grandmother at the end of your cul-de-sac who drives a Subaru and has yeah. and has a yeah, no hate. Perfect. Hate's not allowed here sign
2: in her yard I think that's cassie dylan maybe yeah, but, that and that's really
1: exactly right. right yep and and the fact that she knows right away i have to make a connection with average americans or i have no shot and she's already failed she's done right now she has done that i'm prom- i promise you that she won't or she won't win a single delegate in the democratic primary right now Mark it. that video she's done once you go joke as a candidate once you become a joke you go broke that's an undeniable law of a, of, of politics in any culture custom language time period um, g- political structure once you become a joke you go broke she broke she gone and she and and and, and she knew right away she had to tackle this because of how ridiculous the one thousandth and 24th percent of Cherokee or whatever she was claiming and so right away she tries to make her common man appeal and right away she's done and that only spe- – see, the, See Joe Biden is full of malapromps too. The difference is Biden's malapromps are often in the same settings Trump's are, meaning Trump and Biden are both really good. This is what's rare about Trump as a billionaire. He actually relates to regular people. – I've seen it. Not not in rallies. I mean, like in actual personal settings, he relates to everyday people really well. Where Trump struggles is the pop and the circumstance, like that awkward as hell call to that on Christmas <laughs> to that kid. Hey, do you still believe? I mean, that's that's what Biden does. So their weaknesses kind of cancel out because Biden's other prompts are the, the 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 circumstance. The pomp and circumstance is not his strength either. Elizabeth Warren can't relate to the average person because she's not the average person. She's a faculty member at Harvard. She's a faculty member at Cal Berkeley. Those are her peeps. That's her base. And and that's why she won't be the nominee. And the fact that she knew right from the get-go she had to try and get over this hump only indicates I'm right. If they nominate someone who is likable, they're going to beat him. If they don't, they won't. If he's still in office, if he survives this year, I, I still think this will be a very tumultuous year for the Trump presidency.
0: I just love, though, when you peel it back and progressive narratives collide. It was just a couple months ago uh, when the press spent a lot of time talking about uh, Brett Kavanaugh. Now, once they, the, the sexual assault narrative started to unravel, Brett Kavanaugh, did you drink too much beer in college? And here comes Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> beer. I will drink a beer now. I'm one of you. <laughs> How do I unscrew this? Ke- oh, gosh. <laughs> oh. Loved it so much. So At least
1: much. they didn't have her tap in a keg, right? Could <laughs> <She> <laughs> should you imagine she, she that? She should have cracked a, red a,
2: cup. cracked a bush light or, a, or, some, or some, some like dollar beer or something like that.
1: All right. Hey, here's what we have coming up. I'm excited about this. Ryan Morrow, if you've been listening to our show for years, he's with the Clarion Project. He's one of the brightest minds on foreign policy I have met in my career. He's going to join us here in a few minutes, except he's not going to be talking uh, about foreign policy, at least not primarily. Instead, we're going to be discussing um, where is the real Mount Sinai? And he's got a new film that's out on YouTube that talks about this, uh, that I had a chance to watch over my Christmas break. And we're going to get to that here when we come back live and on demand on The Blaze. Stay tuned. All right, back here live and on demand on the Blaze, Steve Dace alongside uh, Todders and Aaron McIntyre. 888 93. Steve at Steve Dace. Dot com is the email address. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace show. Well, if you have been around our show on various platforms for the last several years, uh, the name Ryan Morrow will be familiar to you because he is one of our go to guys when it comes to issues involving foreign policy and national security. And, And depending on how much time we have, we may get to some of that in this conversation. But the primary reason we have Ryan with us today is he's got a new movie out. Uh, That it's on YouTube right now. I had the opportunity to check it out uh, while we were on Christmas break. And it makes a pretty compelling case for the Mountain of Moses, the real Mount Sinai, to have been located in Saudi Arabia. And he's with us here now. Happy New Year to you, Ryan. How are you, brother? Doing very well. Happy New Year. So before we get to the evidence for your case, I'm always interested in why people do what they do, Right. Um, You know, from a Christian worldview, motive matters the most. You know, why we do what we do, choose this day whom you will serve, etc. Right. So why why interrupt all the important work you do year round there at the Clarion Project? Why take this detour um, to do a deep dive into the intersection of history and theology? Why?
3: Well, I wasn't always uh, a person of faith, um, and so shortly after I became one, uh, when I was just becoming a teenager, uh, I ran into this problem, which is that uh, I'm very cynical and I need a lot of evidence to believe in something. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes an absurd amount of evidence. <laughs> um, and basically, there is this academic consensus that still persists that the Exodus story is not true; is at least 99% made up, and the rest is exaggerated. And that bothered me, and I became aware of this theory that the reason we weren't finding this evidence is because we were looking in the wrong spot. Uh, Specifically, we should be looking in Saudi Arabia for the Mountain of Moses, Mount Sinai, and evidence of the exodus. Uh, But those that went over there were getting arrested, detained sometimes for over 70 days, and their evidence was being confiscated. So you only had some grainy uh, pictures and videos that, for someone like me, wasn't that convincing. Um, But there was something inside of me that, even though I knew about this, just kept my mind on it, even though, though I wasn't fully convinced. And it was my dream to go and, and see if this stuff was actually there and as dramatic as people said it was. And honestly, it was just a miracle that happened. I didn't put together a plan to go. It just, something came my way. And I got to be one of only a handful of people to ever go and set foot in these places. And I didn't even want to make a film, uh, but the footage that I got... And the process of me trying to explain the significance of it just required a film. And so it just kind of happened on its own.
1: So some background, because we are living in an increasingly secular age, for folks that have maybe heard the term the Exodus and yet don't know what it means, never saw Cecil B. DeMille's Charlton Heston classic, the Ten Commandments from yesteryear, for example, the Exodus is the path that Moses leads the Israelites on to escape slavery or flee slavery in Egypt to eventually uh, leave bondage behind and live in covenant, in communion with God as their king and in the land of milk and honey, the promised land, uh, the, the land of Israel, right? This is So this is the journey, the, both the physical and spiritual journey that he leads them on, this exodus from spiritual and real-world bondage into spiritual and real-world freedom. That's the story of the exodus, and one of the primary locales in that journey is Mount Sinai, where Moses went to the top of the mountain and received... I guess we would call really the first written revelation from God, right? The the the, the Ten Commandments, okay? So this is a very pivotal moment. Uh, it, it, for really all three of the monotheistic religions, for people who have never seriously stu- studied Islam, uh, I mean, essentially it has all the same history in the Quran of the of Muslim people that the Jews claim and Christians claim through the Jewish people, through Christ. It just has this happening through the lineage of Ishmael instead of the, li- the lineage of Isaac, but it's virtually the same story. And so this has a lot of historical and religious significance in the world. And and you pointed out that, hey, you know, we don't have a lot of evidence of, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people fleeing from, you know, the a world, the, the world power at the time. And, and we've had these arguments before, you know, about 150 years ago, there was a gentleman named William P. Ingersoll that used to go all over the country, giving a speech called The Mistake of Moses. And this was prior to the advent of modern, modern archaeology. And he would make the claim that King David never lived. Uh, Moses never lived. Uh, the Hittites were not a real people because we had no historical evidence of any of these things. And, you know, we have the advent of archaeology in the next few decades and over the last several decades and then the De- the Dead Sea Scrolls, nobody takes the, the meanderings of Ingersoll and his ilk seriously uh, anymore because archaeology has confirmed at least some of the core details of, of, of the myths, legends, or truths, depending on your perspective, surrounding these people and events. But yet you saw that there is still this disconnect with the Exodus. And so... Saudi Arabia, why do you think it fits the narrative?
3: Well, the clearest answer is the evidence that can be seen in the in the film on YouTube, Finding the Mountain of Moses. Um and we also have a website, SinaiinArabia.com, but Finding the Mountain of Moses is the name of the film. Um, but aside just from the visual evidence where in this part of Saudi Arabia, basically we look at the biblical directions, which are very specific. It's like a roadmap, and you apply it to this route. And you run into evidence of basically every single thing that the Bible says happens from the Red Sea crossing over to Mount Sinai. Um, But fundamentally, uh, really what it comes down to is that Moses fled to Midian. Mount Sinai should be in Midian. And where is Midian? Northwestern Saudi Arabia. Some people say it includes a small part of Egypt's Sinai Peninsula, but even if you believe that, and there are criticisms of that idea, Nonetheless, the vast majority of Midian is modern day Northwestern Saudi Arabia and old Jewish, Christian and Islamic traditions that only recently have really been researched do indicate that Mount Sinai should be in Northwestern Saudi Arabia today. So
1: I did some background after I watched your movie. I did some uh, background on your claims. And this is a I found this has kind of been a debate since really about the 1980s. Uh, yeah. That this is where uh, the real Mount Sinai is, and I, I've, I've read some theological disagreement or criticisms of, of your conclusion. Now, where your, where I think you take this to a different level uh, is your ability to go and actually visit these sites. Um, Because here's why this is key. One of my favorite discipleship tools, people ask me all the time, hey, I'm in a small group. Is there a video series or something you would recommend? Uh, One of my favorite discipleship tools is called, is a video series called That the World May Know. And this is essentially, small groups of, of believers are taken to the Holy Land and these videos are shot and you visit um, you know the real places and altars in the locations uh, that the scriptures talk about and since there's been so much archaeological excavation of the Holy Land in the last century particularly uh, since uh, the the Jews reclaimed you uh, know uh, control over israel after the u.n charter uh, a lot of the evidence of these old altars and things of that nature exist still 1600 1500 a thousand uh you know 2000 or 3500 years later and and so this is where i think your film makes a very interesting case is that if you're gonna if you're gonna make the case that the previous theological um, conclusions of where this is located are wrong, then just as we've been able to excavate some old of some of the old evidences of these locales in the Holy land, there should be some traces of these events in Saudi Arabia, as you claim, right?
3: Yeah, that's absolutely true. And it's amazing how as technology advances, Ah, uh, we're finding more evidence verifying the biblical accounts. Uh, whereas, the, you, you talk to the average person, they think technology would result in debunking the biblical accounts, but it's as if everything has been calibrated to where, as our skepticism of faith increases, so with the technology to allow us to better understand and verify the biblical account would also increase. Um, And so uh, it's really amazing, but for a lot of people that look into the debate of where Mount Sinai is and where the evidence should be, they're going to look at it, and it's going to get into the weeds, and they're going to say, well, both sound plausible. Which one should I go with? Well, go with the one with archaeological evidence, because you don't have two equal cases in that regard. You have people going to the traditional site and concluding that the Exodus is a myth. And then you have this other candidate with very compelling visual evidence to where you feel like you're in the Exodus when you're there. And when you watch the video, you can visualize this happening like never before. Um, and, and so to me, it's, it, it's really a strong case that Saudi Arabia is where we should be looking. And when you follow the Bible like a roadmap, uh, you just run into so many things. And we're just scratching the surface. There's stuff that we have not released. There are places that we want to do further research into where we found things, but we want to better understand them. Um, and no one's even brought a shovel there to start digging. This is just the stuff on the top layer.
1: Here's why this is important. Uh, For those that don't care about Ryan and I's affinity for the the biblical narrative or things of that nature, uh, you may be an atheist, you may be a a secularist, you may be religiously agnostic and different. The discussion we're having today right now between him and I is at the, pardon the pun, is at the genesis of pretty much every news cycle you are witnessing in the real world. Um, I, I think... People believe that a lot of Americans, Ryan, believe that the debate over who controls the West Bank or what are the borders of Israel and should there be a a Palestinian, believe that this is the Palestinian Jewish argument that has gone on for thousands of years. And that's again, if they understood the Exodus narrative, that is not true. What the Israelites did as part of this narrative is they went out and essentially eliminated the seven uh, pagan tribes of people that Bedouin people that lived in the Holy Land after this exodus they removed them like through warfare they eliminated those people uh and and so these are not this is this is not the same battle this is this is a totally different group of people that we're having this argument about now and this goes to why knowledge of these events is so key because whether you believe in the religious conclusions that uh, folks like you and i may draw from them or not they absolutely are at the heart of much of what goes on every news cycle in the world right now
3: Right. And there are going to be big repercussions from this um, because I'm getting a lot of traffic from the Arab world now. Um, and Saudis locally will say it, when I go there, they just come right up and they, hey, you want to see the mountain of Moses? You want to see where Moses walked? You guys don't know about this. Um, And all that information now is going to be coming out. And so you are going to have a, a tremendous holy site that people are going to want to visit in northwestern Saudi Arabia. Now, this is the same area that the Saudi crown prince is working to modernize and allow outside influence in. Uh, So this could be really positive on the one hand, because you can allow non-Wahhabi influence into the area, people of faiths to come together, and the area to become modernized and really help solve some of the Saudi dilemmas we're faced with. Um, But then on the other hand, uh, you're going to have a lot of people like the Wahhabists, like the Iranians, like the Muslim Brotherhood who are not going to want outside influence coming in, some that may even try to destroy some of the evidence that's there. Uh, and in fact, and I've never said this publicly before, um, there are accounts coming out now from Iranian proxies and people connected to the Muslim Brotherhood that just in recent weeks came out and said, yes, Mount Sinai is in Saudi Arabia, and they started saying that it's setting the stage for the their version of the Antichrist Uh, to show up. Um, So this can be very good for the region. uh, But for the bad guys, our adversaries, uh, they're going to want to turn it into something, a point of conflict, basically.
1: You said earlier that uh, folks have not been able to gain access to this. Is there a reason beyond just the, the, uh, the lack of modernization in the Muslim world Uh, in general, or is there something unique that they acknowledge about this site that they don't want to gain access, outsiders to gain access to it?
3: Well, first you had uh, the problem that tourism isn't even legal in Saudi Arabia until recently, and now it's allowed but highly monitored. But these specific archaeological sites have police patrols making sure that you don't come in, and they're fenced off and marked as an archaeological site. So at least elements of the Saudi government understand what's there and how important it is, um, but have decided not to let this get out to the outside world. And maybe some elements of the Saudi government think it's something else and not relate to the exodus, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, the point is, is that they don't want people coming in to see it. Um, so maybe it's because of the geopolitical ramifications. Um, but in my film, I talked to a contact of mine who used to be pretty high up in the jihadist world, and when I said to him, hey, I, I'm going over there to see Mount Sinai in Saudi Arabia. You probably don't know about it. He goes, oh, me and the jihadi brothers, we, we all knew about it. Are you talking about the place with the fences? And uh, he explained to me that uh, the real hardcore fundamentalist Muslims um, would know about this place, but they believed the right thing to do was what the Saudis were doing to cover it up, not allow people to go. Because if it becomes a site of idolatry, if people start taking rocks and selling them saying it's going to heal your disease or people Mm -hmm. start worshiping the mountain, then according to Sharia law, they have to destroy the place. So ironically, it's like God used Wahhabism and and Sharia law to preserve these sites. It's amazing.
1: Final question, Ryan. Have you pondered, you mentioned the geopolitical uh, impact of of this potentially being the site of Mount Sinai have you pondered the uh, the ramifications if we if if it's fully excavated and the artifacts show language and customs of a Semitic and not Bedouin nature if you know what I'm trying to say have have you pondered what the ramifications of that would be geopolitically?
3: Yes, because we found proto-hebrew inscriptions there mm-hmm. Um, specifically a sandal with a foot in it next to a Hebrew writing that says the sole of the foot. Uh, And what's that referring to? Probably the God telling the Israelites, wherever you set your foot, uh, that's going to be the land that I'm going to give you at that time. Um, So that's, you know, the ramifications of that are big. There's inscriptions of menorahs being found. Um, So there's clearly a Hebrew-speaking population that was there around the time of the Exodus Um, But the way that the Muslim population is going to interpret it is they're going to say, well, we came from that same lineage, so I I don't know that it would necessarily lead to a conflict on that level. Um, But certainly it's a high-risk situation, and there was part of me that said, don't come out with this because it's just that huge. You've got to work with governments in the area and figure out how to handle this. But uh, then I thought about it, and the adversaries of the West, Iran, Muslim Brotherhood, they're already trying to shape the narrative and say this is a Zionist conspiracy that must be fought with jihad. And so it's up to us, the good guys, to tell the truth about it and shape the narrative before they do.
1: I've got less than a minute. How can folks watch this video for themselves, Ryan Morrow?
3: Go to YouTube and just type in Finding the Mountain of Moses and the website for updates, Um, including our our fundraising efforts to engage the Saudis about this is SinaiinArabia.com.
1: Okay. Good stuff, Ryan.
3: God bless you, man.
1: We'll have you back soon. Talk some foreign policy. Okay. Take care. All right. Thank you. Any quick reaction? Modern day
0: Indiana Jones. It's good stuff. It excites me. Makes me want to go over. The, uh,
1: the Semitic markings of artifacts as opposed to Arabian or Bedouin. That's a yo. That, Is a yo to me? That's your that's your headline, right there. And even if and here's the other question: even if this isn't the original Mount Sinai, then where did those come from? Then in in that area, in that in that part of the world, where the what would be the other source for them then? Right. Too bad we don't
0: have time to consider this kind of stuff because you know in the uh, global warming and and uh, transgenderism, man, it's we got pressing concerns here, brother.
1: Yes, um, um, we we can't consider things that actually have happened three thousand years ago that we're still arguing and killing each other about right now because we don't know what the weather the temperature on Earth will be ten thousand years from now. Is that what I hear you saying? Bingo has an ammo yeah yeah. I, you know what I want I want to go further into why I think this has geopolitical ramifications when we come back. It is Theology Thursday. We will get to today's truth bomb. We'll get to our study through Colossians as well. But th- that's a dangling part of simple. We can't just preach literally. Okay? Preach literally. We got to discuss that. All right, we'll do that when we come back. Hour two, live and on demand on The Blaze coming your way. Stay tuned. <laughs> All right, we are back with hour two live and On Demand on The Blaze. I am Steve Dace. Todd and Aaron are here with me as well. Let us know what you think about what we think. Steve at stevedace.com is the email address. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. At Steve Dace Show, last name spelled for those of you listening on the podcast or uh, on The Blaze Radio so you can't see my name over my shoulder. Uh, last name is spelled D E A. CE. We'll get to some theology Thursday uh, coming up uh, for most of this hour, but we begin with today's truth bomb, which again is a totally contrived segment to provide me an excuse to promote my upcoming book, releasing January the 15th, Truth Bombs Confronting the Lies Conservatives Believe to Our Own Demise. Pre-orders happening right now at Amazon.com. If you want to get yours, I promise you'll probably regret it. Let's get to today's truth bomb. Blaze alum Buck Sexton tweeted this out earlier today. Say what you will about Democrats, but they don't needlessly shank each other in editorials or on TV for a few scraps of short-lived praise from a media that despises them. The GOP could learn something. Buck is exactly right. Democrats don't do that. But we need to understand why. Why this is true. It's true for this reason. The Democratic power structure is compiled of those driven largely by the same ideological goals. They just have differing ambitions. The Republican power structure is driven not just by differing ambitions, but differing ideological goals. Meaning, the Democratic Party's core argument is who gets, to be, who gets to have the credit for doing what most of us agree we're all here to do. The Republican Party doesn't agree on what they're all here to do. And so that takes ambition, and as you like to say, Todd, quoting the great prophet's spinal tap, and it dials it up to 11. Because when ambition can be restrained, when... You know, if I go too far in, in driving my ambition, I, will, I may counteract and create a backlash against the reason I'm in this business to begin with. I, I, I may work against my own stated mission, my own crusade. But when you are in the same tent revival... And don't share the same. You see the pun that yeah. I made there with the big tent. Uh, when you're all in the same tent, revival, but you don't share the same gospel. Suddenly, your ambition's like your gospel's different than mine, bro. So I will freaking rip you to shreds because I don't care if you don't. If if your gospel doesn't get there, I don't believe the same thing that you do.
2: Well, isn't the shared goal winning elections? Oh, Roy Moore.
1: No. Yeah, that doesn't no That's no political party and I, and no 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 political party can 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 stay together with it, with its only with its primary goal be, being to win elections it is the marital equivalent of we're staying together for the children no you're not you're staying together until he finds someone he finds prettier and she finds someone that she thinks is more patient compassionate and provides a better living you're both staying together until you find a better deal that's what it means Okay? Because you didn't get married for the children. You had married because of your love for one another, your belief in one another. If you remove that from the marriage and replace it with something that isn't nearly as inspiring and unifying, that marriage is a, is a marriage of convenience, and it's doomed to fail. And that's what the Republican Party is. It is a marriage of convenience. It is not a big tent. Now, I'm, going to, I'm going to use this explanation. I don't know that our Blaze listeners have heard me use this explanation since we came over here. The Republican Party is not a big tent. It's a big tarp. Here's the difference. A tent has stakes that hold up its corners and foundation. So it may sag some in the middle, but the 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 foundation is rooted. A tarp is a covering. And so a, a tent is a shelter. It's a dwelling. A tarp is a cover. And that's what the Republican Party is. It's a place where people who don't want Marxism to take root in America run for cover. It's not a shelter. It's not a dwelling. It's cover. It's a place where those who don't believe in the progressive utopia run for cover in order to protect themselves To cover themselves from what the left wants us to be. And then what happens is when the acid rainfall of the left ceases, when it's defeated in an election, for example, and it's safe to come out underneath the cover. And these people that are now have been hidden and huddled under this cover together to protect themselves from what was going on outside when it's now safe for them to come out and they now have been given the the authority and the opportunity to replace it with something else, it always falls apart because they're not united in anything other than a shared opposition to the other thing. And so once that reality, once that reality becomes obvious and you realize, you know what? You and I really aren't after the same things. That's now where the permission becomes, it's similar again to a marriage. Once one of the spouses comes to the conclusion, or both of them do, that the other one doesn't want the same things I do. They get especially snarky, especially ruthless. The filter is gone. Because I've made the decision, you're not what I want. And that's what the Republican Party is. It's a marriage of convenience. They're together for the kids. They're together to win elections. Okay, the kid. so when they stay together for the kids, what happens after the kids leave and the kids are grown? What usually happens to those marriages? Done. Done. And so when they win the election, what happens? Nothing. Nothing. They're done. They can't govern. Just like the couple staying together for the kids can't stay together once the kids are grown and gone. Because they're not a couple. They're not really together, and that's what the Republican Party is. Thoughts on that, gentlemen? Of course, of course. Um, and so, as long as that remains true, what Buck is lamenting can never go away. That can never go away. There are there have been times Todd and I have nearly gotten into fights here. The key word in that statement is what? Nearly. Nearly. Why? Why have we nearly? nearly gotten so far under each other's nerves that that's happened
2: because they you know i'll kick your butt if you do
1: (laughs) (laughs) no because in the end the thought that is this confrontation and the cost of it if we allow it to go where our passions and emotions want it to go or our ambitions that's another word for ambition right if we allow it to go where our passions, desire, and emotions are pushing us to want it to go, will the cost, the collateral damage of that consequence, is it worth paying given the shared mission that we have? That's why it is nearly. When we come to the conclusion that the answer, or, or if we come to the conclusion that the answer is, yeah, it is, then the word nearly will be removed. And so on the Democratic side, I can promise you, Elizabeth Warren, you don't want to know what she thinks of Kamala Harris because she's essentially the junior version of Elizabeth Warren going after the same base of people. And I promise you their staffs hate each other, and I promise you their their campaign organizations say the nastiest, most terrible, dirtiest things about each other. They're never, though, going to show up doing an interview with, with Shepard Smith, who's the Fox News version of Jake Tapper. They're never going to show up on Shepard Smith, though, and blast one another on Fox. That's never, ever going to happen. Why? Because while there may be time those divisions run deep, they nearly will come to blows and then won't, because the shared mission of what they want this platform called the Democratic Party to accomplish outweighs the cost of of acting exclusively on their own personal ambitions. The reality is Mitt Romney wants a different America than you and I do. Now, he wants a different America than Elizabeth Warren wants, too. But the different America he wants looks a little bit closer to Elizabeth Warren than you and I's. And that's why he has stepped to Donald Trump more aggressively in the last three days than he did in the last three months of the 2012 presidential campaign against Barack Obama. Same goes for John McCain. John McCain had no problem panning Rand Paul, Mike Lee and, and Ted Cruz as wacko birds. But if you dared uttered Barack Obama's middle name, Hussein, he called you a racist. Why? Because the reality is his views were closer to Barack Obama's than Mike Lee's and Ted Cruz's and Rand Paul's. And once you come to that conclusion, it's similar to when my team has a quarterback who assaults a woman. If he threw four touchdown passes in the last game, I really believe in second chances and grace and mercy, and she's probably lying about it anyway. If he threw four interceptions the last game, we need some standards around here. It's clear the coach has no discipline, and you can see when you're led by a crap quarterback. See my point? See, you've come to the conclusion you don't have a shared mission with that quarterback because he sucks. Your mission is, in this case, you, wanna, you wanted to win last weekend. He cost you the game. And since he cost you the game, you're, you are now unrestrained in your evaluation of him because there's nothing tethering, holding you together.
0: And when I said, of course, before, I was searching for a way to say this, and, and you helped me find it. I, I don't know. Do you know Buck personally? I, no, I, okay, I've never I, met him. I, no. I mean, I know what he does, who he is. But, but my question back to him is, I, I, when it, whether it's through Twitter whether it's in person at the functions that we've been to, which you've been to countless more, I don't understand how Buck does not feel the answer to this in his bones. Because I do. Like I, when I'm around it, I just know what he's asking now, is I'm, not. possible. Right, I think
1: Buck used to be an intelligence officer. I okay, think. Well, I, so see, I don't my, know. About so what, what, what this could be is. Maybe baiting the question. Yes. You you throw that out there. Okay. Because you force, you force the people around. There's no, there is no good answer to what Romney's doing other than Romney is essentially saying in case Trump gets impeached in case of Trump impeachment break Romney glass. That's what this really is. I'm, I wanted to be president. Although I was, I didn't want it enough to do what it was going to take to win. Okay. So if there's a way I can back into this because Donald Trump's a fiend, I'm your huckleberry. All right, and so this could be a way of framing the point, because Maybe. there's no good reasons for why Romney's doing this. All the reasons are bad. All the reasons are and, bad.
0: And just you're you're around whatever us is in terms of this tarp. The people are going under. You're, you, you aren't you in it for like five minutes, and you're like. Oh, dear God, oh, yeah. I used to run away it's, screaming.
2: Yeah, it's less of a, a tarp and more of running through the acid rain of progressivism in the Hill House. The rain stops and then you realize, <laughs> oh, crap, this place is haunted. Yes. Um, that's that's more like what what being in the Republican Party is. You don't realize where, where you are um, when you're just she- seeking shelter. But then when things calm down a little bit and then you have to figure out how to settle down – uh, you're screwed, and you continue to get screwed, uh, especially if you're a conservative. This this whole conversation relates back to what we talked about in in the first segment. Um, people like to uh, like to like themselves, and the reason, again, just to maybe state it a different way, why there is so much shanking um, intra Republican shanking, except for when it comes to Bipartisanship, I just saw Mitch McConnell said that, uh, said that this incoming Senate is fertile ground for bipartisanship, which basically means you're going to get the shank over and over again uh, in this upcoming Congress. The reason um, why people shank each other in the Republican Party over and over again is because, again, they like to uh, they like to like themselves. and who they are is not you. That's why Mitt Romney is shanking. Donald Trump. It's not because of Donald Trump. It's not because he says uh, things and he has mannerisms that are just completely antithetical to a lot of the people in Washington. It's because he represents you. And to quote Mitt Romney, "You're not a part of his campaign." That's exactly right. That's exactly right. All
1: right. Can we go back? Let's 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 switch gears. Go to theology Thursday. And before we go back to our study of Colossians here at the bottom of the hour. I want to spend about 10 or 15 minutes talking about the geopolitical, a little bit more detail, the geopolitical ramifications in the real world of what Ryan Morrow from the Clarion Project, who put together this video, um, the, the real Mount Sinai, the Mountain of Moses, search for that on YouTube. Uh, you can watch. It's like a 25-minute video uh, that he shoots right there on site. It's really fascinating to watch. I'd highly, I'd highly recommend it regardless of your views. But let's let's game theory this out a little bit. Let's let's say the Saudis allow full excavation of this site, the way the the Israelis pretty much have in the last few decades of a lot of the uh, uh, the, the the claimed places of significance in the Holy Land. And uh, and let's say the Saudis allow full excavation of this site. And and he said they did some just entry level excavation of the sites while he was there and and he saw examples of proto how he described it proto-hebrew meaning the the symbols and foundations of a language that would later on become identified as hebrew all right because and he said this in response if you weren't listening last hour he, 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 go back and listen to this conversation in fact. in fact, here's what you might want to do. If you're listening to this on the podcast right now and you haven't listened to that conversation, you skipped over with Ryan Morrow, you might want to go back and listen to that conversation with Ryan and then come back to this part of the broadcast so it'll make more sense. But in response to the question I asked Ryan of what would be the geopolitical ramifications of an excavation that found Semitic symbols and writings, meaning things of Jewish origin? Okay, compared to Bedouin or Arabian, which are the the original tribal names of a lot of the peoples from that inhabited of that period, uh, that that area in that period of time. If if we found Semitic symbols, uh, symbology and writings compared to Bedouin ones, what would be the geopolitical ramifications of that? Well, everything (laughs) is a short answer. Because we're having we're having this debate. The Muslim world does not debate Moses or the Ten Commandments. It doesn't debate any of that. It debates that the Jews are the people of the promise. That Isaiah, to put it to to make it as simple as I can, so we because I, I you know this is not really the time or place to do a true this would take an entire theology course to teach by somebody more qualified than me. So as a learned layman, which is what I am, I'm not a theologian, I'm a learned layman, meaning a regular guy that's studied a lot of this and can carry a basic informed conversation, but I am not, uh, I'm, not your, I'm not your Spurgeon here, okay? So as a learned layman, let me try to make this and connect the dots as simple as possible. The core of the debate is that Father Abraham took, took Ishmael, the son that he had with Hagar, the Egyptian, took Ishmael up to Mount Moriah, which is, which is the ancient name of what we call today the Temple Mount. That he took Ishmael up to Mount Moriah, and it was there that God tested his faith. And the Judeo-Christian narrative in history of the Bible is that Abraham took Isaac, the son that he had through Sarah. That was the son of promise. He took Isaac up to the mountain. That's the debate, right? Mm-hmm. I have that right? That's, and, that, and that's really where this now detours. Now, Ryan said something interesting in response when I asked him, what would, be the, what would be the Muslim world's response? Did you guys catch this part? I asked him, what would be the Muslim world's response to Semitic symbology and writings at, at the excavation of this if it was indeed confirmed this was Mount Sinai? And he said, "Well, they would just argue that you know they came out of these people as well. It's not that simple. Can't make that argument. Here's why. In my view, you can't make that argument. Here's why. To me, I I think this is an either or proposition. I, I I think it's a zero sum game here. Here's why. Because Abraham predates Moses by a significant amount of time, actually." Abraham was called out of, of, out of a region called Ur of the Chaldees. Where is that? Iraq. Iraq. Modern-day Iraq. He is called out of that region. Okay? So, it's not as simple to say, well, our lineages are similar. Why? Because the paths diverge at Mount Moriah. Whether Abraham took Ishmael or Isaac up to that mountain is a question that predates where is Moses' mountain. So, if indeed, if you do the math in reverse, if indeed you excavate this site, and it is confirmed that this is Mount Sinai, and there are clear, overt Semitic, Proto-Hebrew, as Ryan put it, symbols throughout, replete through the excavation, then the question of what occurred at Mount Moriah is settled. There there, there isn't a room for an alternative. The Islamic narrative collapses, frankly. There's no room for an alternative theory. Now, some will say, and this is what I would say to me if I were you, Steve, you're always the one arguing philosophically for one side's assertion to be true, so must then the, the opposite of it. So if we go there and we find Bedouin markings, does that collapse the Judeo-Christian narrative? It doesn't collapse it. I agree it would not be ideal. I think we would all agree it would not be ideal for the Judeo-Christian narrative if this were to be confirmed through excavation, the, the site of Mount Sinai, for there to be Bedouin symbology and markings and not Semitic or Hebrew. I think we would agree on that, right? To be fair, okay? But here's the problem with saying, while it would not be a boost to that narrative, I don't believe it's even a mortal wound to it. Why? Because you then still have to do the math to explain. Where does the history, why have the Jews been in that land and lived there on and off for thousands of years now. Why? You meaning their narrative still has a historical claim. They have still Moses never or I'm sorry, Muhammad never visited the Holy Land physically. Went there in a dream if you read the Quran. He never set foot there. Where do the the Jews have a claim to that land historical? That we, can, that we have historical evidence and ties to. I've mentioned archaeology has uncovered references to King David, for example. So the Jews still have a claim to that land. Where did that claim come from then? Because the point of the Exodus was to lead them where? Promised land. To the promised land. So while I agree it would not be optimal for the Judeo-Christian narrative, for that site to be affirmed as the as, as the Mount of Moses and then for it to be Bedouin in nature, it still doesn't, doesn't really dent at all where the historical claim of the Jews to the promised land comes from. Do you see what I'm trying yeah. to say? Whereas in my view, the entire Islamic narrative collapses. In the heart of Saudi Arabia, Muhammad's home nation, in the heart of Saudi Arabia, this is confirmed as Mount Sinai and everything there of historical significance in the confirmation is of Semitic origin. There's only one explanation for that. I think there would be no other
2: explanation. There's a reason maybe why it's 2019 and we're just now hearing about this maybe. Is this gambit? Yeah. To me, it's, it's, a, it's a
1: risky gambit. It carries some risk for the Judeo-Christian narrative. It's the if you want to use a poker term it is the degree all in moment for the muslim narrative. The muslim narrative either is sustained or collapses if that site is Mount Sinai. I don't I don't see an in between. The the judeo-christian narrative still could fall back on okay then you still have to explain to me where the jewish claim of the holy land historically how did they get there then. Yeah. And you still have to answer that. And no, the people that the Israelis are arguing about, where's the capital of of Israel, how much of the West Bank um, is this occupied territory, those Palestinians are not descended from the seven tribes of Canaan that the Israelites removed and replaced. Those tribes were eliminated and or married and melded into the Jewish people the Palestinians are when when New Gingrich got in trouble for saying they're a made up people he got in trouble for saying that because it's true there is no native Palestinian people many of them were folks that were refugees that were thrown out of other Muslim countries and they settled there okay so this this is these are not the descendants of the people that the Jews fought to get control of of, 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 of the holy land they're not descendants of people. biblical people long
0: Assyrians babylon you know from those areas yes. but yeah but they but be, this is not this is not a repackaged. three
1: yes this is this is not the same in, in iteration Correct. of rivals that the jews have been fighting for that land uh you know for you know since the time of 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 king david that's not true okay that that's not a historically accurate claim and and by the way they don't claim that That's largely a misinformation campaign from leftists and and progressives uh, in your own elite academic and media cultures and Western civilization that have muddied the waters um, in order to create an outcome that justifies their own utopian views of the world, okay? Uh, So your thoughts on that – of adding an extra layer of context to that conversation and its particular – its potential ramifications?
0: Well, your poker analogy is apropos, not, not just for how you used it in terms of what's at stake uh, uh, for Islam, um, but going back to where you started, what, how it changes everything, uh, a, the, a Eureka-like moment. That just I keep I refer to Indiana Jones, but you know there's Indiana Jones movies have a magical quality to to where where lies are literally you know destroyed by spiritual uh, uh, phantasms before your very eyes, but you know the ability for the truth to uh, bend every knee to give people eyes to see and ears to hear we are clearly in desperate need of that as a people and we're always kind of trying to figure out wh- who's it going to be when's it going to be right now there's there's so many liars who who will step forward and be be the light in the darkness uh that i just i hear this story and i'm just kind of like humbly begging please can can something uh resembling the truth come out of a story like this because we are a
1: people that are wandering in darkness and we so badly need it. I mean, Aaron, let me try to make it even simpler, which got me thinking about this while Todd was talking. So thanks for prompting me, Todd. Let me make it even bottom line, it simpler. If this place were to be excav- excavated and confirmed as Mount Sinai and the artifacts there are overwhelmingly Semitic in nature and origin, in that process, there is, there is no point to Iran's foreign policy. There, there is, there's no point to Wahhabist Islam. The, the, the caliphate you're talking about. Yes. Mean, baby. There, there, yeah. that, it's a, the, it has no basis of origin or, or validity, which is the driving conflict in our foreign policy that we witness in our news every day literally has no basis in fact or, or belief whatsoever. It's exposed as a complete and total fraud.
2: Yes, in game-planning this out a little bit, the the key phrase here is eyes to hear, eyes to to hear, boy, you better get yourself checked if you have that, eyes to see and ears to hear that Todd used, Um, because at the end of the day, although this may be true, you know, if if what you are postulating and what Ryan is uh, postulating as well is true, and they do do some excavations and they do find more Proto-Hebrew in that area, um... Only those who really have eyes to see and ears to hear will be affected by that. Because do you think a a religion such as Islam that has been around as long as it has been and has hoodwinked and has had more control and power over as many people and as much land and sand dunes as it has had, do you think that that, that's going to change overnight with this type of news? Certainly it's not. And I don't think that's what you're saying. No. Um, It's certainly not. But from the academic and from the critical view, meaning those who are looking and are searching and are trying to hear from the critical view, this will be the card on the house of card cards on the very lower level when it comes to Islam. There is no other. Uh, there's no other pillar, I don't think, on which um, they can build anything of their claims. If this is knocked out
1: Islam has never really produced a free egalitarian society No Um, And so imagine you're those people that have been pressed Under the thumb of Islamic authority And the narrative of Islam were to collapse You're going to be a lot less inclined To permit yourself to be oppressed Under the thumb of that authority You know what I'm saying? Absolutely that would have huge ramifications More in a moment, stay tuned (laughs) All right, back here live and on demand on The Blaze. Steve at stevedace.com is the email address. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. If you are listening to the podcast today on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify. If you have time, please, we appreciate it. Leave us uh, one of those five-star reviews. And the more of those that we get... Uh, the more listeners that tend to uh, find us and we tend to get as well. And the more of those we keep getting, the more we can keep giving you this program each and every day here on The Blaze. And thank you to all of you also that have uh, left us those reviews as well. And you may be saying, I don't really like your show. I don't think it's worth a five-star review. Well, we wouldn't ask you to lie. We just might ask you to kind of keep that information yourself and just not say anything that. But if you do like the show, those five-star reviews, we appreciate them. Thank you. So let's continue on a Theology Thursday. And uh, late in the uh, previous year, we started our very first ever on-air Bible study through the book of Colossians. And I've, I've been thinking about doing this for a while. I, I just didn't want it to be contrived or forced. And I was looking for some inspiration um, uh, about what's the what's the right—because it, it needs some— Deep theology, but it can't be so far in the weeds that we go right to trigonometry before we've ever done any basic math or algebra, right? Uh, but I don't want it to be vapid, and, uh, and, and, and I want it to be impactful at the same time. And so I kind of hesitated and, and kept this uh, desire to do this to myself for a while, and I was sitting in church one Sunday, and a, a sentence from Scripture popped into my head, and it, came, it comes from this book. And that's, that's when I decided, you know what, we're going to do this book. For our very first on air Bible study. So, since we've been gone for several weeks, I'm going to, this first week back, we're going to kind of do a remedial. We're going to kind of go back to what we've talked about before, hit some of the major points, just make sure everybody's up to speed. And then when we come back here next Thursday, uh, we'll advance further into the book of Colossians. Fair enough? Okay. So for those of you that are new to this, uh, the book of Colossians is what's called an epistle. That's a fancy stained glass window word for uh, a letter in, uh, published in the New Testament. All right. And the author of this letter uh, is uh, Paul, uh, who was uh, appointed to be the apostle to the Gentiles. What does that mean? Well, yeah, keep, keep in mind that Jesus is Jewish. Your early church fathers apostles the disciples jewish so out of the jew in, in the jewish teaching the world is divided into really uh, two facets gentiles and jews right so gentiles just means the the non-jewish people and the non-semitic people uh, in the world the people that are outside of god's covenant through moses that's what it means right and so there's a great there's a there's a there's a providential meaning and irony behind Paul being appointed to be the apostle to the Gentiles, because as he describes himself in another epistle, he is a Hebrew of Hebrews. Uh, He is is a uh, a Jewish teacher of the highest order. He was taught by a Jewish teacher uh, of the highest order. And uh, part of that calling as God's covenant people was to separate yourself from the influences of the pagan, of the Gentile world. But as a symbolic gesture to show, you know, when Jesus loses his temper in the temple, when he sees that they've turned the altar of God into a marketplace, and he quotes from the prophet Isaiah and he says, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. That the time would come that God would open his covenant up to all of his people. And that this is a symbolic gesture moving us to that Reality to see um, one of the most preeminent Jewish thought leaders of his day is now the apostle to the non-Jewish world. He is he is taking what he believes uh, is not a replacement, but the fulfillment of. The calling of the Jewish people, the, call, the, 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 the compiling of the Torah and the law and the prophets and the Proverbs and the Psalms. And that, and that he is taking the fulfillment of all those things that he believes Jesus Christ is. And he is now taking that fulfillment of the Jewish faith through Christ. He's now going to take it to the Gentile world, the rest of the world. I guess this is God's way of saying only Nixon could go to China in a way. And we also pointed out that, um, you know, they didn't just spin the wheel of destiny in heaven one day and they plugged their noses and closed their eyes and Jehovah pointed at the board and it was pin the uh, the tail on the Jew and this was the Jew that got picked to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, there's a reason here. Paul, as both um, a respected Jewish scholar and a Roman citizen, Keep in mind, the Jewish people are oppressed by the Roman government at this time. All right, so they're they're an oppressed people. And they've only been given some limited religious freedom because they have shown such a commitment and zeal to uh, to the purity of their faith, even to the point of... Um, The Maccabee rebellion that helped eventually lead to the ushering in of the of the Romans uh, conquering the Jewish people that uh, they've shown such a commitment to the purity of their religion that the Romans just decided we're going to give you some form of religious freedom because we're just tired of killing you and you killing us. And we'll, you know, we'll meet you halfway. You still have to report to our prefect. That's what Pontius Pilate was. You still have to, you know, we will appoint your king. We'll still give you a a quote unquote Jewish king. Herod is actually Idiomian. uh He's descended from Esau, meaning not Jacob. Okay, so we'll we'll give we we still we will appoint your king. Um, you will have to respect the law the the authority of our prefect. Uh, you can't um, you you can't practice capital punishment. That's why they needed to bring Jesus to Pontius Pilate. Uh, there were limits on on their freedom uh, as as uh, Jews because they were an oppressed people, but they were given some limited accommodation that other conquered cultures within the Roman Empire were just told to assimilate, worship Caesar as God, or you know we just crucify all y'all. Um, and and so this is the environment that Paul comes out of is that he is a rarity among the oppressed Jewish people. He is also a Roman citizen. Now here's why that's important because it gives him a freedom to go to places like Colossae to go to places like Corinth to go to places like Ephesus when 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 we first encounter Paul the first time we encounter him in the New Testament he is holding the cloaks and tunics of those who are stoning the first martyr of the church Saint Stephen didn't we just have like his commemoration his just, feast you, you of did Stephen right after Christmas. okay um, good King Wenceslas came out on the Feast of Stephen, right? That's an Christ, old-school Christmas carol, okay? Yeah. That's what that's a reference to, Yes. all right? Um, he's, in the New Testament, we first meet Paul holding the cloaks and the tunics of those who remove their outer garments rather than risk getting them dirty or the blood of Stephen on them while they stoned him to death for preaching Christ as the Messiah. The next time we encounter him, he is on the road to Damascus. Now, Damascus is where? Syria. Syria, so it is outside of Judea which means the, the list of Jewish leaders who could just decide, you know, I'm going to go visit Antioch. Just going to head over and see what the, going to see what the Syrians are up to. You know, it's, a, it's the Sabbath and I've got my day off and I'm just going to go check out, you know, Syria's nice this time of year. No, they couldn't just get up and go, guys. Now, Paul can, Saul, as he's known at this time, he can do it when probably, I would, I would imagine... Uh, if you just study history the list of those within the Sanhedrin the, the highest the Jewish high council at the time who could just pick up and leave the the province of Judea without a Roman uh, permission slip, let alone guard, is a real low list.
0: Your whole previous argument says the opposite. They w- they wanted them contained. Just yes. be peaceful yes. right there. Stop messing around. So who says God isn't pragmatic, man? He's like, hey, he's got his passport. I know he's bloodthirsty, <laughs> right. but he's got his
1: passport. <laughs> right. It's easier to—if we, we, we're going to flip somebody, flip the guy that can go everywhere. Yes. That, that's half the battle right there. There you go. All right? So uh, so Paul is is, is is on his way in order to address a surging Christian— po- and this is actually—Syria is where Jesus' followers are first referred to in the Scriptures as Correct. Christians. Correct. All right? uh, They're in a place called Antioch. All right? So he's on his way there to deal with the Christian problem, meaning he's going to deal with some heretics. That's what he's going to do. And it is on this road to Damascus where this rarity of a human being at this point in time in history, a man who can freely walk with respect and regard and esteem into any synagogue— throughout God's covenant people the Jews, but can also walk into almost any place freely that he can safely get to uh, in the first century within the pagan Roman Gentile empire. He's on a real short list of people who can walk in both of those worlds. And that's why God chose him, I believe. And so he is the one that is writing this letter to the Colossians. And when you read Paul's epistles, again, his letters, it will often begin with a couple of things, and this letter does as well. Begins with um, salutations, greetings. He mentions those that he has met in, in the travels to these places in the past, that he planted churches through, um, and he did not plant franchises. Paul wasn't one church in many locations. No, no, no. Paul found guys like Epaphras and said, you're the pastor of the church here in in Colossae. Timothy, you're the pastor of the church here in uh, Ephesus. Okay. He planted churches. Put men in charge of churches. He wasn't a brand. He wasn't a franchise. He wasn't many churches in one, lo- one church in many locations. No, he planted churches. He had an apostolic calling, which was apostolic meaning to ro- find, train, rise up, and call and place other leaders within the church. That's what he did. That's the Christian model. We're not a KFC. That's my side tangent. You want to get me going. Get me going on the whole one church in many locations thing because, man, that that's on the poo list of the, the, the Steve Dace uh, hymnal book. I'm not a fan of that at all. Just as, as long, long as
2: there's a McDonald's in the atrium, I think fine <laughs> is anything.
1: Leave it to the millennial to find an accommodation where they are serving real white chicken meat now for their McNuggets, which Organic means all meat. those years yeah. when we were buying those nuggets. Yeah, we did it old school. They weren't. If they're telling us now, they're selling it's real chicken <laughs> meat. was a chicken? That wasn't what we were eating before, Todd. The saying, right? Okay? So um, Paul plants these leaders. But every time, you know, he's – but he is the apostle, which is a – you know, if we were going to put it in a modern term, he's kind of like the regional manager or a bishop in some respects. And so sometimes when those under him in his network, sometimes those churches, churches, you know, they need some correction. They need some clarification. Some correction. I think of Galatians immediately. Well, I was going to go to Corinth. Sometimes he just needs to take his belt off, right? And they need a foot broken off in their backside, you know? Sometimes there's just, sometimes a correction is needed. okay? And so that would often be the source of these letters, and, you know, so he begins with a salutation and, you know, it's almost a, a, a Paulian way of saying this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you before the spanking begins or the clarification begins. Uh, he asserts his credentials, reestablishes, hey, I am the divinely appointed authority here. I'm the apostle. And so I have and the evidence of how I have carried out. He doesn't just say, hey, I have this calling, the evidence of what I've done to carry out this calling, the suffering I've done for this calling. And some of that suffering is putting up with some of you. <laughs> the suffering I've done for this calling is evidence. I am the one that has been given the apostolic authority. So I speak with divine inspiration. And when we go through the rest of chapter one of Colossians, it, be, it, it, it asserts what theologians later would call, and there's, and there's other um, uh, shadows and evidences of this in the Gospels. But Paul is really the first one here in this part of Colossians to put together what modern theologians refer to as a Christology. And when you look at the transition here in chapter 1, there is no transition to this Christology. He just goes there. As if to say, you know what? As we're resetting things, let's reset the main thing he is the image of the invisible god the firstborn of all creation for by him all things were created in heaven and earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and for him and he is before all things and in him all things hold together and he is the head of the body the church he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent 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 means what preeminent Nobody's imminent before you. Nobody is before you. You are lesser to nothing. Lesser to no one. No one is before you. You are the Alpha. You are the Son of God, as in God incarnate. You are God. Not the Son of God like Noah is the son of Steve. Where he is an offshoot of me, he retains some of my characteristics because he is an offshoot. But he is his own distinct person at the same, no. As in you are the incarnation, you are the physical form of the only living God of the universe. That's what that means. For him, and how do we know that's what it means? Uh, the very next sentence. For in him, all the fullness, all, some, most, kind of, Thursdays, when they wear white. The, all. The word all means? All. All. All the fullness. Fullness. Ha, kind of, completeness. Well, you know, maybe in this life or another life or maybe at another time. No. Fullness. The first, the first word of fullness, which is a, the first four letters there, are the word what? Full. Full. Not empty, sort of, kind of, halfway. So we have all, we have full. For in him all the fullness of what? What's the next word? Truth. Deity. God. Or world. deity. For, him, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is not a branch, an offshoot, a descendant in the way we understand father-son relationships. He is, he is literally, literally the physical vessel of the fullness of God, which means he is what? God. God. That's what it means. That's what it means. And through him to reconcile to himself, to reconcile to himself all things, some things, most things, a few things, All things, reconciled to whom? Himself. Why to himself? Because he's God. He's the preeminent one. Whether on heaven or earth, making peace by the blood of his cross, meaning he is the only atonement that reconciles the debt God has owed for our sins. He's the only one. He can be the only one that does the reconciliation because he's the one on the cross. Paul then goes on throughout chapter 1 to reassert his ministry and talks about who we are. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our man you well. God lives within us as his people, sealed by the covenant through blood, just like the original covenant through Moses was sealed by the blood of the Passover. This one is sealed by the blood of the crucifixion. And now Christ lives in us. And that is where we are given the power to be new creations. That is the hope of glory. That we can be better than our base natures, different from what we once were, or to use a phrase that sometimes gets panned but is accurate nonetheless, to be born again, to be new creations. Thoughts on that, gentlemen?
2: It's – I want to go back to something you said earlier uh, about the lack of a transition to – going into this Christology, which is why I always uh, have recommended if people are going through a rough patch in their faith, or maybe they're new believers, or maybe there's, uh, I need to get back into reading the Word every day, start with Colossians, uh, because the main thing is the main thing, uh, as we just heard throughout that entire um, monologue, uh, as, as Steve made his way through the the passage. Because what um, Paul is doing, without any sort of qualifiers, anything at all, is getting us right back to the main thing, which is Jesus Christ. Our faith is built on nothing less, as the song says. Uh, and that is something that we—it's hard because we're humans and we're fallible. It's hard for us to remember. Colossians always helps us do Don't
0: that. look for a new me. Look for Christ in you. There's a big difference.
1: Well said, both of you. John three seventeen. See you tomorrow.